Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikbat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, across from the Art Museum. For more information, you can visit our website at tikvatisrael.com. There, you can support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and contact us with any questions or comments. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. The fantastic Jewishness of each story on its own. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of tease these two stories apart, and in so doing, we're going to see how each story on its own is incredibly Jewish and has something to say. And I love this part of the sermon because I see those that grow up Jewish saying, really, Wayne, you're going to do this? Really? And I can see those of you that grew up in the church kind of... Oh, here we go. He's going to ruin all my wonderful childhood memories of Christmas, and this is going to be bad. To all of you, I want to say that this is not my intention at all. In fact, I want to add a fresh coat of paint to those wonderful childhood memories. Just hang with me, okay? Let's go, shall we? As I mentioned before, there are two nativity stories in the Brit HaChadashah, one in Matthew and one in Luke. So naturally, we're going to begin today in 1 John. Naturally. It's our Parsha for today. Eric read it beautifully, and Sonia Wine alluded to it in her drosh. 1 John begins the word. Devar, in Hebrew, the word which gives life. He existed from the beginning. We have heard him and we have seen him with our eyes. We have contemplated him. We have touched him with our hands. The light appeared and we have seen it. We are testifying to it and announcing it to you. Eternal life. He was with the Father and he appeared to us. What we have seen and heard, we are proclaiming to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Yeshua, the Messiah. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Yeshua here is depicted as the word, the logos in Greek, davar in Hebrew, memra in Aramaic. Remember that in Hebrew, the word davar is a noun and it is a verb. It means so much more than just W-O-R-D. It means matter. It means existence. It means substance. And by extension, reality itself. As a verb, it harkens back to when Hashem created the world by just speaking it into existence. His word, yes, His very devar, created the foundation of all reality. John makes a direct connection that Yeshua himself is an incarnation of the very essence of the power of the Almighty himself. And this word, Hashem himself, chose to become incarnated in a baby, to go through the whole life cycle as if to say to, to all of us, my children, I love you so much that I'm going to show you how closely I can identify with you as a human and how much I want 
to identify with each of you as my child. First, let's run down what these two stories have in common. Both stories have Yeshua born in Bethlehem, the birthplace, of course, of King David. Both assert very strongly that Joseph is of Davidic ascent. Both have a supernatural angelic announcement to a parent that they will bring God's Messiah into the world. Both strongly assert a virgin birth and the conception of Messiah from the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, the power of the Holy Spirit. In both stories, a parent is instructed to name the child Yeshua, which means Hashem saves, Hashem restores. In both stories, Yeshua is born during the reign of King Herod the Great. And in both stories, Yeshua is raised in Nazareth. Now, let's get into these stories separately. Again, my goal is not to separate these two stories in your childhood memories. Hey, keep them together. I have no reason to believe that they didn't happen together. And let me go on record as saying that I believe that they did. I believe that they were written about, however, from different perspectives. After all, well, y'all have known me for years. You know I love y'all to pieces, but who can I pick on? Uh, David Farouz. David Farouz. I know that David has a brother. I know that David has nieces. I know that his father's name was Isaac. I know that he is married to Sandy. I know roughly how old he is. I know what he does for a living. I couldn't tell you where he was born. I certainly couldn't tell you what hospital he was born in. Garrett, my brother Garrett. I've known Garrett for the better part of 12 years. I know that he's married to a lovely girl named Esther. I couldn't tell you what elementary school Garrett went to. I couldn't tell you what aunts and uncles were or were not at his birth. And the point that I'm trying to make here is why should we think any differently of Matthew or Luke as far as certain details go? Well, we shouldn't. We're going to start in Luke because I think it's a bit more straightforward. Now, in all the Gospels, pardon me, in all the Gospels, you definitely see a conflict with the Pharisees. Now, I've said this from this Bema before, the Pharisees get a really bad rap, but I think that's really unfair. At the end of the day, they were doing what they felt would bring honor to God. The problem laid in that over time, they became so dogmatic that the letter of the law, the act of obeying all these commandments in Leviticus, outshined the spirit of the law which is halakha, being your brother's keeper, taking care of one another and honoring God out of gratitude for his faithfulness and not to take constant inventory of how well or poorly your neighbor obeys or doesn't obey every single law. In fact, it's interesting that the phrase, the Pharisees, appears more frequently in Luke than in any other of the four Gospels. Let's just say that the Pharisees believed that God would be pleased with overkill. 
There's a huge difference in Torah. There's a huge difference between being ritually impure and being morally impure. There's a huge difference. Examples that I think of more, most often is that it's certainly not morally impure to prepare the meat of a kosher animal for a meal as long as it's been properly tithed. It's certainly not morally impure to bury a deceased loved one. It's certainly not morally impure for a woman to have a baby or for a woman to go through her normal monthly biological cycles. It does not make you morally impure to take care of animals, but they do make you ritually impure for a time until in all cases, your clothes and your body are washed. That's it. To be ritually impure, by the way, just simply means you can't go onto temple grounds. That's all. The Pharisees, however, took this way too far. The Pharisees believed that ritual impurity was contagious. If I touch someone who's ritually impure, then I become ritually impure. So the Pharisees purported that those that prepare your meat should never be directly touched. Those that keep animals should never be touched, nor even approached. And unfortunately, sisters, don't kill the messenger. The scriptures are very clear about the taboos of any man, much less touching, but even, even speaking to a woman in public, even interacting with a woman in public. The nativity story in Luke, brothers and sisters, it, it smokes, it reeks, it radiates ritual purity issues. It comes as a huge surprise, at least it did to the first century audience, and it was probably very disconcerting to the first century audience of the Gospel of Luke, that the key player in Luke's nativity is Mary, a woman. And moreover, that an angel no less than Gabriel, who first appeared in the book of Daniel doing nothing less but heralding the messianic age, the Almighty sent his most important messenger, Gabriel, to a woman. Isn't that wonderful? If this wasn't disconcerting enough to the first century audience, Hashem chose to announce the birth of the Jewish Messiah to shepherds. Shepherds. The most unclean of the unclean. Shepherds. Who constantly dwell with their flock, living, sleeping, eating on the ground in the filth which taking care of flocks of animals, well enough said. Water, if you could find it, especially running water, if you could find it at all, that was a luxury. You couldn't wash anytime, anywhere you wanted. You constantly had to touch sick animals and assist pregnant animals in giving birth. And you had to do this day after day, year after year. But Luke does not stop there. After Yeshua was born, he was laid in a manger, a trough for animal feed, with the traces of the saliva of umpteen animals right behind him. When do you think maid service ever came and cleaned these things out? Filthy. This, this is the very definition, brothers and sisters, of ritual impurity. 
the Almighty chose to announce the birth of the Savior of the universe to a woman and to the lowest of the low, shepherds. Now, in so doing, is Luke trying to tell us that the ritual purity laws of Leviticus are thrown out? Are somehow no longer apply? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. What Luke's nativity is telling us is that the Pharisee, the shepherd, men and women, the highest and the lowest, all matter to Hashem. We are all important and deeply, deeply loved and cared for by our Abba, which is in heaven. Indeed, Luke's gospel, it's, it's in Luke's gospel that has Yeshua saying, what you do to the least of these, my brothers, you have done unto me. That's in Luke. Love, brothers and sisters, love for all. That's Luke's nativity story. Pardon me. Now, Matthew was clearly, clearly, clearly written by a Messianic Jew to a Messianic Jewish community. In Matthew, there are no shepherds. There's no census which takes Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. They kind of, sort of seem to be already there. Matthew begins with a genealogy of Joseph with no less than the two Greek words, biblios henesis. One not need be a student of Greek to hear the connection, the book of Genesis. Matthew is obviously connecting the birth of the Messiah to the very creation of the universe. This genealogy of Joseph continues through all the Jewish kings, down to King David and down to Abraham, emphasizing Yeshua's straightforward Davidic descent and unquestionable Jewish stock, just as predicted in Scripture that the Messiah would be. In Matthew, Joseph is the key player. An angel appears to Joseph and instructs him that it's okay. Take Mary as your wife. She has become pregnant by the Holy Spirit and will give birth to the Messiah. King Herod finds out about this from the Magi or the wise men. More on them later. And God tells Joseph in another dream to flee with the child to Egypt as Herod orders all the young males slaughtered. Certainly, this is a direct allusion to the slaughter of the innocents by Pharaoh upon the birth of Moses. Now, did you hear Sonia Wine's drosh? Can we think of another Joseph who dreamed dreams and was able to save his family from annihilation by a journey into the land of Egypt? In the Torah, Jacob's son Joseph is used as an instrument of God to save his family. Moses is used as an instrument of God to save his people from slavery. And here in Matthew, Joseph's son Yeshua is used by God to save the universe. In the history of the Jewish people, 
the uh, Babylonians invaded the Holy Land, destroyed Hashem's temple, and sent waves and waves of elite Jews east into exile into Babylon. But now, in Matthew's nativity, Matthew has magi, wise men from the east, following a star and being led to the newborn king of the Jews. It's almost like the exile, the most traumatic episode in Jewish history, is turning itself around. And now the elite of Babylon are being supernaturally led to the land of the most important king ever. Matthew goes on to describe Yeshua going up a mountain and delivering what is most likely the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Can we think of another person in Torah who goes up a mountain and comes down with a direct teaching, the Torah of the Almighty himself? Brothers and sisters, I'm going to be straight with you. I'm going to confess something to you. I don't know if what I'm about to say is significant or whether it's just a coincidence, but it's certainly interesting. It's certainly worth mentioning. In Matthew, Yeshua is asked what is the most important commandment Yeshua responds, Hear, O Israel, Adonai is our God. Adonai is one. And love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The Shema. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua preaches the Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And it is worth mentioning that in Matthew, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight Beatitudes. Time doesn't allow us to go into the Beatitudes here, but for the purchases, of the, excuse me, the purposes of this sermon, I don't have to. But I do want to leave you with this thought. We see the Beatitudes crocheted into little tapestries and hanging in people's bathrooms. We see them painted on pieces of wood at these craft bazaars. I stand here before you and I assert that it's things like the Beatitudes, benign as they are to us, that probably got him accused of blasphemy and killed. Brothers and sisters, this is huge, huge, heavy stuff. Yeshua is saying, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Have you ever thought from whose perspective is he talking about? Blessed from whose perspective? From Hashem's. And I can see all the religious leaders, you know, around saying, shaking their heads and saying, how dare he? 
How dare he? How dare this, this wrong side of the tracks, Galilean hillbilly, how dare he speak that he knows and speaks from the perspective of God? It is in this that we truly see the beauty of Matthew. Hashem sent Moses as the messenger of the law that God wrote, the deliverer of the Torah that God wrote to the Jewish people. But here in the Sermon of the Mount, Yeshua is not a messenger. He's not a deliverer of God's word, of God's devar. Yeshua, he is the legislator now. He is the maker of the law. You have heard it say, said, but I say. You have heard it said, but I say. That is on the Sermon of the Mount. And guess in which book Yeshua says, I have come not to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. That's in Matthew. That's in Matthew. The spirit of the law is doing unto one another as you would have them done unto you. It is loving Adonai with all your heart, mind, and soul, and loving your neighbor as yourself. It is loving someone to the point where you, should, you, you would lay down your life for them, that you would die for them if need be. Hashem reveals our Messiah, Yeshua, as his true davar the true living word spoken into existence and convicting us to live with his devour written across our hearts. Whatever, whatever it is that you do on Tuesday, whether, whether it's something you've done your whole entire life, whether it's opening presents and eating a Christmas turkey, or whether you already have the Chinese restaurant picked out that you're going to eat at, and you already have the movie theater selected and the movie that you're going to go see. I hope that you do so with an appreciation of the beautiful, sacred Jewishness of the Nativity. Thank you for listening, and Shabbat Shalom to all of you.